Good morning. It is a blessing and a privilege to be here with you this morning as we spend some time together in God's Word today. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think this is probably one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, the leaves are changing, and it's going to be a beautiful fall. It's great to see farmers that are out getting the crops in out of the fields, and the crops look good. It's just been a, a, a beautiful time to celebrate all that God has done. I thank him not only for that, but also for meaningful worship and praise. And I want to praise God this morning for our time together with our praise team. And let's give them a hand for what they do, how they share. We are continuing in a study this morning called Meant for Contentment. Uh, Tyson started us off on that last week. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he uh, dealt with the first part of that chapter. We're picking up with about verse 11 through verse 16. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to turn to that and be prepared, we'll be looking at those verses in just a moment. Um, a few weeks ago, I we went over to Mulberry Grove. They were having a blood drive, and I like to give blood as often as I can. And so I went and did that. And oftentimes, the blood, uh, Red Cross will send you an email saying, if you come and give blood, uh, we'll give you a gift card, we'll give you a T-shirt, there will be something to entice you to come and do that. There wasn't anything like that this time, which was fine. But after I gave blood, uh, I got home, and about two days later in my email came a note from the Red Cross, and it said, we really appreciate you coming over and giving blood. And so we have attached to you a gift certificate for, wait for it, a free haircut <laughs> at Sport Clips. I'm about half tempted to take it <laughs> and just go in and say, here, <laughs> I want my haircut. Man. I started losing my hair in the 30s, not 1930s, when I was 30, and um, uh, it was kind of frustrating at times, you know, you hate, to see it, you hate to see it recede and go and say goodbye to you in such a meaningful and permanent way, but it was doing that, and, and, and I didn't like it, but eventually I, I kind of got used to it and accepted the fact that, well, it's, it's going to be gone. I believe that God probably is punishing me because our home preacher that I grew up with, Ben Bean, he was bald as, as you could be, and we made fun of him all the time, so God's probably just paying me back for that. But uh, uh, again, I've, I've gotten used to it. Uh, I can't say I'm satisfied, but I'm content. I'm just content that I'm going to be bald the rest of my life. There are things that happen to us, though, that kind of steal our contentment, keep us from being satisfied. Deb and I had been out in Asheville, North Carolina, and we were heading back home here last week. We stopped in Lebanon, Tennessee all night, uh, and then got up the next morning and came and head on home. But we went to a Cracker Barrel there for supper. And uh, uh, I'm looking through the things on the shelves, got my mask on like you're supposed to have there in Cracker Barrel and, and just looking at things for sale. And I reach up to adjust my mask. And when I do, I feel back and my hearing aids are gone. Oh, no. And my heart just drops. Oh, those things are so expensive. And, and I don't remember any time through the day that I had trouble with them because normally I do when I've got the mask on, it catches on those things and, and I'm pulling them out of my ears. But I know that and, and can feel that. So I put them back. And I couldn't remember a time at all through that day that the things came out. And I thought, well, the only thing that could have happened was when we packed this morning and, and left Asheville, I left them in the charging case and didn't even put them in. That was my hope. But I sat through supper and I was anxious. I was worried, I was discontent, and it just really bothered me. I could not enjoy my meal really much at all. We got back to the hotel. Sure enough, there they were, and I took a big sigh of relief. Thank, thank goodness, because I didn't have to go replace my hearing aids. Who doesn't want to be content? 
I mean, who doesn't want to be able to go through life feeling as though things are good and this life is sufficient for happiness? Paul discovered this when he wrote to the church in Philippians 4, and he did this through Jesus. He said, now that I, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. Wow, that's a, that's a great place to be. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything. I can, I can deal with all of life through Christ because he strengthens me to be able to do this. Now, Paul knew what it was to live life on many different levels. He knew what it was to be wealthy. We know that he grew up probably in a good family. He had the best education that money could buy. He knew what authority and power was because he had, been, he had been commissioned by the Sanhedrin to go to the countryside and to arrest members of the way, Christians, and bring them back for trial. So he knew what that was about. He knew what, uh, um, he knew what a reputation was about because he had a reputation among believers. They feared him. Even when he became a believer himself, they stood back and weren't really sure that he was who he said he was. So Paul knew that kind of life, but he also knew the downside. He knew what it was to be in poverty. He knew what it was to be imprisoned, to be beaten, to be run out of town, to be left for dead. Paul knew the scope of human existence. He knew what it was. Yet Paul said, I have found my contentment not in these things, not in wealth or poverty, but I found them in my relationship with Jesus. As a matter of fact, he said that everything is garbage. Everything is a dung heap compared to my relationship, compared to knowing Jesus Christ. He put Christ first in everything that he did. And he wanted Timothy to know what the secret of contentment is. He wants us today to know what the secret of contentment really is. Now, last week, Tyson shared with us some things that steal our joy that steal our contentment. And whether it's in the secular world or sometimes even in the church, Paul pointed out that things such as false teachers and jealousy and greed and corruption, slander, division, outside of the church, they are are problematic inside the church. They are even more so. And those things can take our contentment away. But Paul wrote to Timothy and said, but you, Timothy, are a man of God. You, church, are people of God. So run capital letters, shall be capital letters, run from all these things, pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now, as Christians, we ought to be known about, or we should be known by the things that we run away from. I mean, there will be things in life that, that people know that we will not engage in or that we, that we simply run away from. Uh, evil desires, lust, and name whatever you want to put in there that's negative, but we ought to be known as people that run away from that. As a matter of fact, the word run is from the Greek word fuego. It's also translated into English as fugitive. So Paul said you need to be a fugitive from the evil things of this world. But we also ought to be known as people running to something and what we run to. And Paul said, you pursue righteousness. You pursue godliness. Both of the words run and pursue are a present indicative active. In other words, in the Greek language, that means this is an ongoing thing. Paul said, you're running from and your pursuit to is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It's not a one-day thing. It's not when you come and made your confession of faith, then you sit back, soak, and sour, and think everything's going to be fine. Daily we pursue. Daily we flee from the things of this world. Daily we chase after godliness and righteousness, Paul says. Contentment is not something that you fall into. It's not something that lands on us. It's something that we pursue. 
and we pursue the God who can give us that contentment. We were meant to be content. So how do we find that? How do we pursue contentment in a world that is filled with jealousy and hate and strife and division, with conflict and, 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 and with uh, lies and deceit and all the things that are in the world around us? How do we find that? We begin by, by pursuing contentment when we fight the good fight of the faith. Man, that's important that we put those words in there, fighting the good fight of the faith. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 6, beginning with verse 12, fight the good fight for the true faith, Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. Do you know that you have been made for more than just this life? You have been created for something much greater than this. You were not born and then lived and then die and put in a box someplace and become worm fodder. That's, that's not your purpose in life. That's not what you were about. The Old Testament says in Ecclesiastes 3, Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has, look, he has planted eternity, ionios, time without end, everlasting time. He's planted that in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. In other words, the writer says that although we as humans are able to look back at the past and to remember what happened, we exist in the future. We don't know what's happening tomorrow. I don't know for sure what's going to happen five minutes from now. I'm hoping I'm still preaching the sermon, but I don't know. That may be the case. However, in God's purview, he's able to see everything through eternity. He still exists in our past. He exists in our present. And God is already dealing with our life in eternity. He's already there. He's already in it. And so he sees life, he sees our existence through the scope, this panoramic view that God has much better than we can. We are created. Paul said we're called to live forever. But the current culture that we live in says, ah, <laughs> don't, don't worry about that eternity stuff. You know, don't worry about that, that next day. Live for today. Grab all the gusto that you can. Follow every passion. Feed every appetite. Indulge every desire. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is too bizarre. There's no more limits. It's a battle of temporary pleasures and indulgence that's versing versus eternal life. So Paul said, you, meaning us, the church today, you fight the good fight of the faith. That article, the, is in there, and that's an important article. He's not talking about the faith that you possess, your belief, your commitment, your confidence in the Spirit, your power in the Spirit. He's not talking about that faith. He's talking about the Word of God. He's talking about the whole counsel, Christian truth, the contents of the Bible, Paul said that from Scripture, we obtain truth, we obtain meaning, we obtain the purpose for our life. But sometimes we struggle in keeping the truth of God's Word in the forefront, front and center. And we struggle with that in our own personal life, and sometimes even in the lives of our family. Parents today, I know, really have to work hard at keeping their kids' worldview as a Christian view. At helping their children see that Christ still is imminent, preeminent over all things, even though the world may say not, uh, not so. Um, a guy by the name of Jason Whitlock is a sports commentator. And he wrote, technology has diminished the influence of traditional authority figures and strengthened the reach of celebrities. Kids shut their bedroom doors, turn on their televisions, their laptops and game consoles. They plug in their earbuds and they open social media apps. And they disappear into a world far removed from mom and dad. With a mere push of a button, 
They tune out the worldview of their families, and they tune into the worldview of athlete LeBron James and actress Lena Dunham and rapper Snoop Dogg and social media race baiter Sean King and others like him. It is no wonder the Apostle Paul said, Mom and Dad, believers, you fight the good fight for the faith, the faith once given. Contentment is not found in the economy. Contentment is not found in the entertainment industry. Contentment is found only in Jesus Christ. Paul said, you pursue, you chase, you go after righteousness. You, you go after a godly life along with that faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Paul said it this way to the church in Philippi. Fix your thoughts. We might be able to think of this in ways to steal your mind. You know what it is to steal your mind? To concentrate with intensity to think about nothing else, to view this through, the, through, through a microscope, said you fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right, things that are pure, lovely, and admirable. He said you think about such things, you, you meditate, you, you pray about them, you study about them, things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep, there's that, that idea of something that happens every day, keep putting into practice all that you have learned and received from me, everything that you've heard from me and saw me doing. Then, Paul said, the God of peace, the God of peace will be with you. Contentment comes from this. When you pursue right living, when you pursue godliness, faith, all these other things, true contentment is the result. But he doesn't stop there. Paul said that when we're pursuing contentment, we do it as we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Look what he says here in Verse 12 through 15. Hold tightly. There's another, another term that talks about something that happens every day. We never let go. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you've declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God. He's telling Timothy this. I charge you before God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate that you obey this command without going to the right or the left, that you obey it without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. At St. John's University in Minnesota, there is written on a wall in the theology department a piece of graffiti. And it says this, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kerygma in which we find the ultimate meaning of our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus replied, what? Well, that's one way that you can confess to what is true about Jesus. But there are simpler ways and much clearer ways as well. John said it this way, that which was from the beginning, God and his son Jesus, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Jesus, the life appeared. We've seen it. We've testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make your joy complete, to make your contentment whole, to make your satisfaction with life as it should be because you've declared the truth that Jesus is with us, has been with us, and is coming again. It was, it was as if John was bringing together all of his mental faculties, all of his senses, 
and, and in doing so, saying that the story that you're about to hear is true, the names have not been changed because there is no one who was in, because only one was innocent. If you desire true contentment, it means that you pursue the truth found in the confession of Jesus Christ. John said, we've seen it, we, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. This is the most powerful message that's been given to the church today. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he suffered and he died, he was resurrected from the tomb, and that he offers grace and salvation to all those who believe, and today he stands at the right hand of God, and he intercedes on our behalf. That is a powerful message. It's a life-changing message. But there's a danger today. There's a danger that exists that when we pursue the truth, or maybe what we perceive to be the truth, that it can take us away from Christ literally. Ed Stetzer, Christian author, speaker, wrote a column called Goodbye Christ, I've Got Justice Duty. And in this, he's talking about a preacher who, who got caught up in the pursuit of people for justice, and, and he says it this way, I know a white pastor who came to understand the depth of racial inequity and white dominance in our society. He also came to see how the church at large often had been either complicit or directly supportive of such dominance. As he moved, as this preacher moved toward a, a, a focus on justice, he said, I saw other changes. His language got saltier, laced with what the Bible calls unwholesome words. He felt it necessary language to confront injustice. His countenance changed. He became increasingly angry and outwardly bitter. His sermons changed. They focused less on biblical exegesis and study and more on the principle and the imperative of justice. At first linked to the Bible, but then he began to feel that the Bible didn't go far enough, so he drew on alternate resources. The justice, he thought, must be achieved, even if it cost him his faith, which in the end it did. Stetzer writes, justice without Jesus results in frustrated, embittered ex-Christians joining others bent on bringing justice to a world no matter what the means. The, only the end goal matters, but when only the end goal matters, the means fail. We will never understand true justice apart from Jesus. We can't, because Jesus is the epitome of that. You see, the Christian message, and, and hold on to this, the Christian message is about that which is true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Some say, that's a very narrow view. I, I disagree. It's a very broad view because it's offered to everyone. What kind of truth was Jesus? Was, the, was he truth only for his day? Was he truth only for his community? No. He declared himself as the absolute universal truth to which all of us, all men, and women must submit. And one day we will. The Bible says that one day is coming that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and declare that Jesus is God, his son. So that's, that's going to happen. Jesus was exclusive truth. No other truth by which people may come to know God. But a world says, now wait a minute, how can you say that? How can you say that your truth claim is any more valid than my truth claim? How can you say that there is an absolute truth? How can you say this truth is above all other truths? Our culture says truth is not absolute. It is a matter of personal preference and taste. Truth is whatever you define it to be. Whatever you decide is morally acceptable, whatever you decide is right and wrong, you have the prerogative, you have the right to be able to say this is true truth. Let me ask you, would you say that the Holocaust is wrong? 
that's a little better than first service, but not a whole lot. <laughs> yes, you would. You, you would say that. Why? Why would you say that? You see, most people hold a view of morality called cultural ethics. In other words, whatever is acceptable in that culture, in our culture, is moral. If the majority of people say a thing is right or wrong, then it must be right or wrong. That's the reason why many people say that abortion is okay, because many Americans, the Supreme Court and Congress, have all said that it is acceptable, it's okay. So if the majority thinks it's okay, it's okay, right? Well, you didn't have to say that. Yeah. You see, the problem is this. If that's true, if, if cultural ethics is true, then how can we say that the quote-unquote aborting of six million Jews by the Nazis was wrong? That was the argument that they gave at the trial in Nuremberg following the Second World War. They said, how can you come from your culture, from another culture, and tell us what to do in our culture when our culture has deemed that it's okay to get rid of what they said was an inferior race? Fortunately, the world court said there is a morality and an authority above your culture that is deemed that that is wrong. Now, what we struggle with today in our world is that that view has taken a back seat to personal preferences, to personal morality. Paul understood the impact of culture. He said to Timothy, you preach the word. You be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, encourage your people with good teaching. Paul said, Timothy, your greatest responsibility is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the message that's been entrusted to all believers. It is a message that corrects lives because it's unchanging. It's absolute truth. Paul said it is well-grounded teaching. And Paul then told Timothy, but listen to this. Be aware that not everybody's going to listen to you. You're not going to have a captive audience all the time. As a matter of fact, Paul said, for time is coming, and I believe is here right now. A time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires. They will look for teachers that will tell them whatever they want to hear. Their itching ears want to hear. And they will reject the truth. See, it's not, it's not absolute truth. It's flexible truth. It's whatever we want, whatever we want the truth to be. I think the world has lost its grip on the idea of absolute truth. I also believe and am concerned about the fact that maybe the church, Christians, we've lost our grip on the truth of God. George Barna, who had a, 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 a polling uh, industry, I guess, some years ago. He's retired from that now. But he found out some years ago that 53% of Christians, evangelicals, 53%, and it's higher now, said there's no such thing as absolute truth. No such thing. 46%, and that number is higher now, of conservative Christians say that Christians and Muslims and Buddhists all pray and believe in the same God. He just has different names. <clears throat> I am afraid that evangelicals, that Christians, have stopped caring about theology, have stopped caring about learning. Now, it doesn't mean that Christian input has stopped. It's just that the kind of input that we have coming in has radically changed. Church growth has been shifted the, from, from theology to methodology. A lot of churches are concerned about growing. They just don't really care what they grow on. You know, do it that way. Ministers out of seminary don't look at past great ministers as an example. They look at CEOs 
of successful businesses for their example and their ideas of how to do ministry. And Christians today, many Christians today, have a focus not upon world evangelism and even neighboring evangelism, but it's a focus on self. We're concerned about ourselves. One advertiser said uh, that uh, uh, Christians, what Christians really want today is to know how to be happy, financially prosperous, how to lose weight while being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the great concerns about, uh, about the church is that and about Christians, I guess in particular, is that, and I'm not saying this is of us, but we need to be aware, is that, that more Christians are apt to share the truth of the Bible based upon what they experience as opposed to what the Bible says. Now, if all we have to share with people is this, that you should be a Christian because of what he's done for me, we're in trouble. If that's all you can say, we are in trouble. Now, one of the great things about the church today is that it has become convinced that Christianity is not just a mental assent to a doctrinal truth, but Christianity truly is based not only in that, but also in a personal relationship with the risen Jesus, and that's a great thing. However, too many Christians believe that all that matters is the experience, whatever experience you've had. Doctrinal statements, theology, man, that's, that's just kind of bothersome. That's really, I, I don't want to mess with that. It's impractical. If all you can say is, look, you should be a Christian because of what he's done for me, what do you do when that person responds by saying, yeah, I'm glad that worked out for you. I grew up in the church, but what I found in my life recently that really brings me peace is the daily meditation upon the higher power that emanates from an avocado. What do you say? What do you say in response? If all you've got to share with them is your experience, then your experience is no more valid than their experience unless you have the truth of Scripture also involved in that. It's not enough. When the pursuit of contentment, oh, excuse me, I'm going to back up. Uh, theology, theology is not born out of our experience. Experience is born out of our theology. Theology, the word simply means the study of God. And, and our Christian experience is born out of what we know about God and what's been revealed from him through his word. When the pursuit of contentment is based only on how we feel and what we feel, then the goal becomes self-centered and self-focused. Theology becomes therapy. The search for righteousness is replaced with a search for happiness. Holiness is replaced with wholeness. Truth is replaced by feeling, and, and God's sovereignty is replaced by whatever it takes to have a good day. There is contentment, however, when we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he was crucified for our sins, that he was buried in a tomb, and on the third day he was raised to life, and today he stands at the right hand of God interceding for us. And when we know that and the expanded truth that goes along with that, then we can be content people because it's not only on how we feel, but it's also based on what we know and what we have learned and what's been revealed to us through his word. One more thing. When we pursue contentment, we honor God. When we are honoring God we can find contentment. Paul said it this way in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6, at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God. The King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, he alone can never die. He lives in light so brilliant that no human eye can approach him. 
or no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. The glorious reality is that Jesus is coming back. That is the glorious reality. And as Paul sets the stage, he said, because of that, you declare him king of all kings. You declare him Lord of all lords. Jesus cannot die. He's never been born. He is eternal. He has always been and always will be. The glory of heaven surrounds God in blinding light. No sinful eye will ever see him. Only through that perfected vision of the redeemed will we put our eyes upon God himself. And therefore we give him honor and praise and glory. That is the response of the believer. It's to glorify God. But let's don't overlook too quickly a word in verse 15. The word is blessed. Did you see that? At just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed. The blessed? The word makarios in the Greek language translates as content, happy, fulfilled. That's pretty cool. This describes God's lack his, his lack of unhappiness, his lack of frustration, his, his lack of anxiety. There are things that displease God, we understand that, but nothing alters his heavenly contentment. Nothing alters his heavenly contentment. Are you content this morning? Many of you are not. I hear it in conversations. I see it on Facebook. I read it in tweets and Snapchat. A lot of social media posts, people are not content. And I know that when we lose our temper, we are, we are tempted to fire back. I mean, when somebody says something about our candidate or, or our view on COVID or, or whatever it is, man, we load both barrels and we fire back and we let them know, I've got the inside track on the truth. I've got it right. You don't. Therefore, this is my opinion, and you better take it, buddy. I read about a preacher who got a letter in the mail. He opened up the envelope, pulled out a piece of paper. There was nothing written on it except the word jerk, big letters. So the following Sunday, he got up and said, you know, a lot of times I'll get letters in the mail that are written out but never signed. This is the first time I've read one that, was ever, that wasn't written out, but it was signed. <laughs> now, as funny as that sounds, I could not believe recently when it was determined that our president had been diagnosed with covid some of you read the responses from people in the world. Hope he gets what he deserves. Hope he really gets sick. Somebody said more than one. I hope he dies. Wow. Who says that kind of stuff? I hope it's not believers. I hope it's not Christians. I hope we're not writing those kind of things. Are the responses that we put on Facebook, are they God-honoring? Ask yourself. The next time you sit down to your keyboard and somebody says something about this candidate or that candidate and you respond with a click like or the amen or you put on your own two cents worth, is God honored in what you said? Is somebody drawn to Christ because of that comment? Is God revered and praised and worshipped because of our, our response and attitude? Can the world see what we wrote and see Jesus in the words that we put on Facebook for all the world to see? It might mean that some of us need to take a vacation from FB. May the words, may these words of my mouth and this 
meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Let me tell you, two things happen when we vent on social media about someone else. Someone, listen, someone on the other end of your comment is being devalued as a creation of God. I don't care your view on anything if it means that you post something derogatory, hateful, mean, and language that just shouldn't be coming out of a believer. When you vent this way, you devalue a creation of God. And the second thing that happens is this, that we become more angry, less content, more discontent. Our hearts are hardened and God is not honored. I'm saying all this so you don't fire Tyson. Proverbs says, gentle words are a tree of life. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Paul told the church in Ephesus, don't use foul or abusive language. Let, <laughs> let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be what? An encouragement to those who hear them. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When we seek to honor God, we are not honoring ourselves. Are you pursuing contentment? Or are you just waiting for it to fall into your lap? I can guarantee you that if your candidate wins, you will not have eternal joy. If your favorite restaurant opens up and you're able to go in and sit down and eat, you will not have everlasting peace. That won't do it. Those warm, fuzzy feelings that you get won't provide eternal contentment. Paul said, chase after, go after, pursue right living and a godly life and accompany that with faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. He said, fight the good fight for the faith. Confess Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and Savior. Honor God, honor God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Don't get caught up in the pursuits of this world. As Pastor Danny Martinez said, let us engage in the politics of heaven, working for God's kingdom here on earth. Yeah. What will it take for you to be content? Possibly a review of what we do with our time and our energies. I found out yesterday that there's a person here in the congregation, I won't give you the name, bought a great big, thick, plain-paged notebook with ragged edges that make it look old and as you open it up this person is writing out the entire New Testament in that book and it fills it up we'll get another book I thought what a great use of time learning the word devouring the word writing the word remembering the word you can't do that on Facebook what do we need to do to bring contentment to our life Pursue righteousness. If that's something that you need to do today, start doing that. 
If you don't know the one that gives you grace and peace and contentment, then this is a time of invitation. You're going to be invited to come and to declare Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior and your Lord as well. If you've not been baptized into him, we're ready to do that today. Maybe as a, a believer that's been worshiping with us for a while, you want to partner in ministry with us and, and declare this as your home church, and we welcome you in doing that as well. Maybe you just need to pray. Uh, we've got some of our elders will come down here and meet you to pray with you if you'd like to do that. Whatever, whatever you need to do, Respond as the Spirit calls. Let's stand, please. Our God in heaven. These are not the most <laughs> pleasant kind of sermons to preach or hear. Uh, sometimes they, they can hit pretty close to home. But Father, not only do we need to feel good about being a believer, but we also need to be convicted at times about how things might be able to change and how we might live more righteously, more godly, that our lives may exhibit more faith and truth and perseverance and gentleness. Heavenly Father, forgive us when we have strayed from that path. And Father, enlighten us and guide us to live as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.